and Hurrah in their latest encounter at the Diamond League meet in Lausanne, Switzerland. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Week on 3. I'm Janice Wong. In the next half hour, we'll be revisiting some of the most interesting topics we've covered here on Radio 3 over the past week. We'll check out the newly decked out Central Market, a new film on climate change by an award-winning filmmaker. And our own award-winning DJ Steve James will be paying tribute to Charlie Watts, the Rolling Stones drummer who died at the age of 80 this week. And of course, we can't forget the Paralympics that just kicked off on Tuesday. Sissy Radford spoke to two Hong Kong para-badminton athletes, Daniel Chan and Tony Chu, as well as their coach, Liu Nam Min, on this week's Paralympic Spotlight. It's a special year for the three of them, as this is the first ever year that badminton has been included in the Paralympic Games. First, I spoke with Daniel, who is the number two ranked para-badminton player in the world. And he certainly has his sights set on one goal, a gold medal at the Summer Paralympics in Tokyo. Daniel lost his leg in a car crash in 2008 before realising his dream of becoming a professional badminton player. In Paralympic badminton, there are different athlete classes, two wheelchair and four standing, to provide a level playing field for different athletes' abilities. Daniel competes in wheelchair badminton and told me that his coach has had to get creative during the pandemic in order to train him the best he can. In Hong Kong, I'm the only one who, who is playing wheelchair badminton. So I have no way to sparring with other people sitting on wheelchair. But my coach has invented a baby car. He sit on the baby car and play badminton with me. So it's uh, just pretending he's one of the wheelchair player, but he's moving by his foot, but actually he's sitting. So uh, actually it's not 100% the same, but it's like 60% or 70%. So uh, thank him and uh, for, for, for that great invention. Great. That's so good of your coach. Such good dedication to, to you as an athlete as well. What are you most excited about now? We're very close. So you have something you're particularly looking forward to? Well, it will, it will be tough. Uh, as is is the first para badminton into Paralympics, so uh, we are all very excited to be there. So and uh, a little bit stressed, but most likely is exciting. So uh, when we look at the Olympic just past it, I think that is the most exciting and most touching moment for me in the last. 30 years, I haven't seen that much audience to look into a sport game. So I hope uh, all the Hong Kong people and all the Hong Kong media can keep the passion and share some of the passion to us because whatever you're able or disabled, you deserve more and more care and attention. After hearing about this very creative training method, I wanted to speak with head coach Yulan Min to hear how he's feeling this close to the games and how training is going. Uh, I would say so far so good, although we can't go out to have a um, t- tournament and then we have no idea how our um, opponent is. But um, I think in Hong Kong, we did quite a good job as um, we got all the supports from Sports Institute like biomechanics, physiology, strength conditioning to build up our strength, uh, stamina, everything. And then we have a court training and then we have a sparring partner from um, those um, youth team, Hong Kong youth team. I think it's, it's quite complete. Mm-hmm. 
It's quite a complete training. The second Paralympic badminton athlete heading to Tokyo is Tony Chu. Tony will compete in standing para badminton. Tony told me how excited he was to be a part of this historic introduction of badminton to the Paralympic Games. I feel very excited because it's the first time to ever in Paralympics there's a badminton skills and I'm really thrilled to go away. How long have you been involved in, in Paralympic badminton at the Hong Kong Sports Institute? Uh, since 2016, uh, I, I got an uh, opportunity to hear yeah, yeah. That there's a friends to call me. Uh, to come here to try. After that, I, I got this, the timing for the training. After that, there's a lot of competitions in the international competitions. Then, I I got a, a pretty good result. So that there's a, a a lot of training and thanks my coach to, to give me a chance to to have this competitions uh, test. And how did you feel when you qualified for the Paralympic Games? When I noticed, noticed that I, I qualified it, that's very exciting to me because uh, that means I can go to Tokyo because I never go to, 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 to Japan ever. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so there's a chance to go to, to Japan. And are all your friends and family very excited to be able to watch you on the TV and, and read about you in the media? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, I got a lot of messages to wish me has a good luck and then do my best in the competitions. I'm very thankful for them. And hopefully get a medal, right? Hope so. <laughs> That's Daniel Chan and Tony Chu, Hong Kong's badminton players at the Paralympics, speaking there with their coach Lu Nam Min. Now, the hottest new destination in Central is actually an 80-year-old building. The Central Market has just reopened to the public after almost two decades, following a $500 million makeover, courtesy of the Urban Renewal Authority. So, was it worth the wait? Hugh Chiverton and Jenny Lam spoke to John Batten, the president of the International Association of Art Critics Hong Kong. Hugh began by asking him if he's had a look at the building yet. Yeah, I've been there and um, had a look and, and had a little talk to a few people yesterday as they were sitting eating lunch. And um, my impressions are um, it's a hell of a lot better than the original ideas that the government had uh, nearly 20 years ago. So that's some progress. Um, they've kept the facade and they've done quite a good job on keeping you know, the, the, the architectural look of the, the building, the, the modernist uh, look of the building, uh, which was built in uh, the late 1930s. Um, the interior has been basically stripped out and the spalling of the concrete has been repaired and it's air-conditioned now, so lots of services are, have been uh, put in and they've used the, the wonderful ambience of the, the high ceiling, so that space under the ceiling has now is now full of uh, services, electricity, air conditioning ducts. So you don't get that feeling of airiness that the, the old market had. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, some of the ideas uh, overseas that come to mind of these renovation old buildings are, 
you know, in, in, in Spain and in, in the US or in France, it, they become sort of like a hub for high-end restaurants or, or, or small sh shops or, you know. Um, do you see that happening to this building? I mean, is that a prime location? Well, it has happened to that building. My impression of what they've put in there is this. It's incredibly crowded, although many of the shops are not uh, full, but there are signs saying they will uh, be occupied soon. And it seems like every possible corner has been uh, utilised. And if you remember the corridor that links Hung Seng Bank to the, to the escalator, that was basically a, a fairly clean... Uh, corridor. There were some shops on the left, on the on one side, the market side, but that corridor has now been absorbed as a as a thoroughfare, and they've got sort of restaurant cubicles or stalls on either side. So you're basically walking through through the actual markets or the the, the retail and and F and B spaces, rather than having a dedicated uh, walkway. Um, now, it's a bit hard to gauge all this because it's, it's just opened and, and many people, thousands of people, want to have a look, like me. And I, I imagine that will taper off and it'll become a little bit more normal. Uh, so what that would be one, one suggestion I, I would make is, you know, try and open it up a bit more and have some, some spaces which are, you know, for circulation. Now, having said that... Um, you know, most business consultants, when they come in and look at these sites, and I'm thinking of PMQ and the old Central Police Station, Daegwoon, is they always anticipate that high-end uh, operators would love these spaces, when the reality is it, 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 not quite. You know, the, 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 the establishment uh, areas for Hong Kong for, for high-end is on Canton Road in Chimsachoe, and you know, in central, with uh, Hong Kong lands uh, developments. Why is it not attractive to these high-end um, shops? Um, because it, it's a mass market space. Uh, it, it's going to be a thoroughfare for commuters. And what I think, what's interesting, what they've done is on the ground floor. Um, you know, what you can do is you, you grab a table, and there's a QR code on the table, and you can you can scan it and order and then the food will be brought to your table. Now, you know, young people like that. And I, I talked to them about the, um, the price points of the food and they all seemed quite happy and I had a look and the set lunches are between, you know, $50 and $70, which is sort of about right. It's not now, bad. One of the, it's not bad yeah. for Central, exactly. Yeah. And so people weren't shocked to go in and think, oh my God, you know, I'm now paying $150. For a, for a meal, that's not the case. So that's a good thing. Um, but upstairs on the third floor, it's a bit weird because there are some, I saw a sort of dining tables with cloths and, and wine and people are, are drinking their wine there. But actually, there are thousands of people milling around looking at them. So I don't know if that's going to work. Yeah. That's John Batten, the president of the International Association of Art Critics Hong Kong, speaking on Backchat. Talking about long waits, it's been a full 12 years since the Norwegian folk duo Kings of Convenience released an album. 
Now they return with their latest work called Peace or Love. On our Common Room program, Alison Howe asked Arlen Ayor and Eirik Glambagbur what took them so long. We've worked for many years on this new album and we have a spe- specific way of working where everything we do takes a lot of time. And uh, the, write- the writing of these songs are sometimes a, v- a year-long process and the recording of the songs are even longer. But what really takes time is for me and Erlen to find the time to work together. And we're both very busy. We both live in, yeah, we live in two different countries. So that's, I would say that's the biggest time structure in, in our project. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a bit like with Kings of Convenience, it's like opposite dog, dog and cat years. It's like we need five normal years to make one Kings of Convenience here. No, that's more four years, four years. So three months every year is Kings of Convenience time. And so for that reason, things takes much longer than you think. I mean, if we were living together and living in the same city and regularly working on music, it could be that uh, it would be better. But at the same time, I did once live in Bergen again from 2007, 2012, and things went just as slow then. Understood. it is just the kings of convenience years. It's one o'clock in the morning In a running apartment In the capital city In the Catholic country Such a beautiful album, but why make peace or love a choice? Oh, oh so you have both? I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, then we can just say congratulations to you. <laughs> but I, I mean, it's it's on a very deep level. It could be spiritual. It could be a very intriguing way of letting us into the album. Yeah, I mean, peace, peace or love are often opposites in life. I found that peace is... Um, is a stab- stable quality where was love is unstable and love is a, uh, is a is a dynamic some a force that pushes you to do things and sometimes those things lead you somewhere else and it's not a peaceful path hmm. maybe our current maybe our current um, society and the way we communicate, it has brought us into an era of peace or love. Interesting. I also want to come to you about fever. I heard that you wrote that for a friend who actually had a fever and you wrote that in Mm -hmm. light years time in terms of King's Convenience time. (laughs) And how did that person react to the song when they heard it? Oh, um, she was um, she instantly loved it and felt very seen in her ill state because i would imagine if i was having a fever i was sick as a dog and then you send me a song basically telling me off for not wearing enough clothes i wouldn't know whether i should be angry but then the song is so beautiful and i can't get mad at you (laughs) well yes um uh, i'm happy that you're having these thoughts (laughs) I 
You know, you can never ask a parent who is your favorite. <laughs> And deep down, you do have a favorite. No, no. <laughs> no, we really don't. At least you would have, I would have to say five favorites or something. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, I mean, every, every all of the songs have got something that which we, which we are very proud about. And that's why they're on the record. I mean, there is something about every song where you think, yes, this is it. It could be, either be an amazing line or an amazing guitar recording or an amazing voice line that's sounding there's something in it that has made it magic and if it wasn't magic we wouldn't put it out I can, mm. I can one, one thing that I'm very proud of now with the new record is that somehow defining our genre like we we put up three albums before this and now with the fourth album we are really defining our genre so to ourselves it becomes very clear that what we are doing with a certain aesthetic concept. Ireland Ayor and Irik Lembang Burr from Kings of Convenience speaking on Common Room. Now, do you remember the award-winning documentary, A Plastic Ocean, from a few years ago? Well, its creator is about to release a new film called The Last Glaciers. And as the name suggests, it will be focused on climate change. On our Morning Brew program, James Ross spoke to Australian journalist Craig Leeson, who is also the director of the film. They started off by discussing the impact of the first documentary in drawing people's attention to the problem of plastics in the ocean. Yeah, we've been extremely pleased and fortunate by the response to the film. And as you said, it was the, the first film that really explored uh, what this product, single-use plastic, really is um, and what it does to our health. And that's why we created the film, was to create the awareness. And, and since that time and since I spoke to you, it's been shown all over the world. It's been translated into 25 languages. It's been seen by millions and millions of people. It's picked up 17 awards, uh, film festival awards. Wow. And uh, it's been screened in places like the Smithsonian. Uh, we did a screening at Harvard. Uh, John Kerry and, and Barack Obama screened it at their One Oceans conference um, during that administration. Um, so it's had a lot of notice. It's been uh, used in other films since, and uh, it really has achieved its its, its intent. Um, more than 140, 150 governments around the world since that film was released have enacted some form of legislation, levy, taxation or regulation uh, banning 
or minimising the use of single-use plastics in their countries. So it uh, it has had a profound effect, and uh, and that's why we made the film. As we said, the film came out in uh, in 2016. Are we seeing any improvement in the situation? Do you think in those five years since 2016? You know, we know about there's a huge amount of plastic in the ocean. There's still a huge amount of yeah. uh, plastic in the ocean, but is it getting any better or is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, that's interesting. So um, we're actually seeing more plastic in the ocean today. And that's because we've already started this industrial process of creating this material. So that was always going to, to happen. On the plus side, what we've seen is greater awareness and people are starting to become more conscious in their consumerism, and we are seeing smarter consumers, and we are seeing alternatives being made to single-use plastics. But on the other side, what's happening is that as oil and gas finds its traditional uh, marketplace shrinking, particularly in the transportation areas, um, they're looking for other markets to pursue. And so another, the other market that uh, they, they're concentrating on now is plastic packaging. And what we're seeing is, is more than $200 billion being spent on making new plastic production plants in just the US alone. Uh, we saw one come online in Pennsylvania just last year, and uh, we are seeing marketing being ramped up by plastic producers to produce more of this stuff. So what we need is even more vigilance. We need governments um, creating stronger legislation. We need to ban single-use plastics is what we need to do. Uh, we need to declare it toxic, and by declaring it toxic or a hazardous substance, we, we already have regulations for products that are declared hazardous or toxic, and we can move it in that way. So um, there is this double-edged sword at the moment awareness is greater more people are looking for alternatives but on the other side we do have plastic producers ramping up production and trying to maximize that market whilst they um, still are able to produce uh, products from oil and gas well there's obviously a huge amount of work uh, to do um now uh you know aside from that though you, you've got other projects going on but before we get to the, the latest film that uh, we want to talk to you about do you think there's a plastic ocean two that we're going to see in the future? Are you going to do a follow-up, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what we need to do is is find out um, in the future whether we've learned any lessons um, now that we've had that awareness. So we've been talking about doing another film that looks at uh, the plastic issue and also other issues that we now know that as humans we're contributing to the degradation of the environment and the effect that's having on us. Um, but we do, you know, as you mentioned, we're always working on films. We've got balls in the air the whole time because um, by the time a film comes out and is released is a long time between, as you know, between the end of production. Um, and and so we fill that space by working on other films. And uh, we we pretty much started working on a new film as we were finishing the edit on A Plastic Ocean um, for, for three, four years ago now. And that film is uh, is ready for um, screening as we speak. And that film is kind of moves on the issue of it is related to to the plastic because the problems that um, are created through the plastic production are also problems that create the climate crisis. And a new film deals with the climate crisis, and particularly through a, a, a an easy to understand visual 
of Glaciers, and that's the name of the new film, <laughs> The Last Glaciers. And that's the big new project, and, and, and that's taken quite a few years to get to that point, right? Right. It's, it's been four and a half, five years to this point um, to make that film. The uh, Plastic Ocean was eight years in production and post-production. Uh, this one has taken... Um, we started at the end of 2016, um, 2017, we were into full swing. And so it's four years. Um, and, uh, it's post-production took 12 months. We had anticipated it would take six months, but we've now done a deal with a, a wonderful distributor. Uh, we can't announce it just yet because they are going to do that within the next uh, few weeks. And uh, and that's that's for uh, screens. That's Craig Leeson, the director of award-winning documentary A Plastic Ocean, speaking on Morning Brew. And to close this week on three, we turn to Steve James and his tribute to Charlie Watts, the drummer for the Rolling Stones, who died at the age of 80. That's all from me for now. Over to Steve. Wednesday afternoon drive and yes, the news uh, right across the world. Uh, in fact, cheers to uh, who was it? It was one of our overseasers text me in the middle of the night. Who gave you my number to tell me that uh, Charlie Watts had left the planet? Uh, Strong, un- unflashy drumming, powering the uh, the Rolling Stones for 50 years. I've been reading all the obits, as I'm sure uh, you have, all the uh, uh, tweets and messages coming in from around the world, ac- across the celeb world. The Rolling Stones announced earlier this month that uh, Mr Watts would not be a part of the band's forthcoming uh, No Filter tour of the United States after he had undergone an unspecified emergency medical procedure, which the band's uh, representative said had been successful. It brought to mind an anecdote uh, first recounted in Keith Richards' book, uh, his autobiography, Life. In the book, it says, In the mid-1980s, an intoxicated Mick Jagger phoned Watts at his hotel room in the middle of the night, asking, Where's my drummer? Watts reportedly got up, shaved, dressed in a suit, put on a tie and freshly shined shoes, descended the stairs and punched Jagger in the face, saying, don't ever call me your drummer again. You're my bleeping singer.